0: My name is Amanda. I want to thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message inspires you, builds your faith, and helps you find your next step toward Jesus. Enjoy the message. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on his staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is God's word for us today. Today we are wrapping up a a series that we've been doing this summer on the Gospel of Mark. And um, as we come to its conclusion, we have this surprise at the end, this twist that nobody, especially in the first century, reading this for the first time would ever have seen coming. I don't know about you, but I love when a story does that. When it takes you places and takes you to a place at the end that you didn't see coming. Great movies do that. I think of two with surprise endings. Uh, maybe the, the greatest two surprise endings of movies I've seen, The Sixth Sense, yeah? And uh, The Empire Strikes Back. Nobody saw those coming, right? The Sixth Sense uh, stars Bruce Willis and he plays this role of a, of a child psychologist and, he, and he's meeting with this um, Boy who says I see dead people walking. You know, it's kind of this thriller. Several moments you get goosebumps in there. Kind of uh, chilling stuff, you know. And and it goes on and on in the movie and he's drawing withdrawing from his family and stuff and it's not until the end that you discover that Bruce Willis is one of those dead people walking. He's dead. He's been dead the whole time. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, it's been out 25 years. I don't feel bad at all <laughs> about revealing that to you. Okay? And then the Empire Strikes Back. Yes, I'm old enough, I saw it in the theater. You know, it's the second installment of the first trilogy and we've already established the villain is Darth Vader and the good guy is, is Luke Skywalker and they're having this epic lightsaber battle at the end of the movie and Luke is really not doing too well. And, and as he's about to go down and defeat Darth Vader, the villain of, of the Star Wars movies, says what? I am your father. And Luke, he doesn't take that too well. And honestly, those of us in the theater at the time, we didn't take it too well. We were screaming with him, no, this can't be. And it was three years before the next movie came out and a lot of us just believed it was a lie. From the, It was just not true, you know? Uh, but it just, total, total shocker. In fact, if you know the backstory there, they didn't tell the cast and crew. Only those two actors knew that that's what was going to be said at the end. It was such a surprise. Nobody saw it coming. So we get to the end of Mark Scott. And uh, as we've explained throughout this series, we've talked about Mark is written as a mystery story, an identity mystery. Who is this man? Who is this man doing things and saying things that no human being has ever done or said before? And um, the readers are told right away, I mean verse one. Verse one of Mark one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we know right away he's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Later, in that same chapter, the father, his voice speaks at the baptism of Jesus, you are my son and you are well pleased. Later, even demons say, we know who you are, Jesus. But nobody else gets it. The crowds never get it. The disciples, they're on the Sea of Galilee and a storm uh, strikes up. We looked at that one week and and Jesus speaks and and the storm is calmed and their reaction is, what kind of man is this who calms the storms and settles the sea? Later, um, as the crowds continue to be bewildered, who is this man? Jesus just outright asks his disciples, well, who do people say I am? And they say, oh boy, there's all kinds of opinions. Some say you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Other people say you're Elijah. Uh, Some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And and then he turns to them. Remember, we looked at this a few weeks ago. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up. And he says, you're the Christ. That's true. And he gets it partially right. But he never would have understood that that meant that he was divine, that he was the son of God, So the story goes on and on, and then last week, we see um, Jesus standing on trial before the high priest, and if anybody should know the identity of Jesus, it's him. He's a theologian, he knows the Bible, and he finally says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one, and Jesus says, I am. And he just falls apart and rejects it, no, you, you know, condemns Jesus to die. So nobody's get, getting it. The people who should get it don't get it. The scholars, the theologians, the Bible experts—they don't get it. You get to the cross, the last day. Jesus' last breath—last breath—is breathed, and who gets it? If you'd line them all up in a room, all the possible characters, all the possible um, people who were part of this story, and said, "Okay." out of a line and pick the guy that's gonna get it, you would've put that Roman soldier who specialized in torturing and killing people, dead last, <sighs> don't never get it. And yet he's the one, Roman soldier. N.T. Wright says it far more eloquently than I ever could in his commentary on Mark, he says, and now at last, not the high priest, not a leading rabbi, not even a loyal disciple, but a battle-hardened thug in Roman uniform used to killing humans the way one might kill flies, stands before this dying young Jew and says something which in Mark's mind sends a signal to the whole world that the kingdom has indeed come, that a new age is being born, that God has done something, the news of which will spread around the globe the Roman centurion becomes the first sane human being in Mark's gospel to call Jesus God's son and mean it. Yes, says Mark to his Roman audience. And if him, why not more? Yeah. Why not more? If he can get in, if he can enter the kingdom, and if he can confess Jesus, what about you? Well, this confession takes place on the holiest of ground the cross and Jesus' death. One of the things we've said in the series, we've pointed out, the mark is the briefest of the four gospels and it goes at a very fast pace. One of his favorite words, and immediately, are suddenly, are, you know, he goes from story, Jesus is here, and then suddenly he goes there, and then Jesus suddenly says this, and, and it's fast paced, and they go through really quickly until you get to the last week of Jesus' life, 40% of Mark's gospel is devoted to the very last week. It slows down. And then the last 24 hours, two whole chapters, long chapters devoted to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And then you get to the day of crucifixion and he slows it way down. He begins telling us hour by hour what's going on. At nine o'clock in the morning, they crucified him. At 12 noon, darkness came over the whole land. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus breathed at his last and died. That's Mark's way of saying, I want you to take a deep breath and contemplate the mystery of the Son of God on the cross. Meditate on this mystery. He invites us into the story. Because you see there on the cross, as Mark marks the hours, we see that the Son of God did only what the Son of God could do. Now, there has been so much written about what really happened on the cross. Brilliant theologians, scholars. I just want you to consider four things that happened on the cross, that the Son of God does what only the Son of God could do. First off, he enters our darkness. Um, A few of us really understand true darkness because we rarely get to experience it, but ancient people knew it, experienced it often. They didn't have electricity and lights and so forth. And so the gospel writers, really all four of them, use light and darkness as sort of visual values, to talk about some things that are important. And, and, and the light and the darkness all stand for something and mean something in each of our lives. And it says here in verse 33, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Now, some have tried to explain this darkness with natural explanations. Oh, it was a solar eclipse or, you know, just real thick cloud cover, thick thunderstorm. You know, how can it get dark almost in the middle of day? No, 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 no. There's no natural explanation. Friends, this is a supernatural, God-created event. total darkness for three hours because there was no day like the day that Jesus died. Mark's trying to tell us something. Now, few of us, like I say, really ever experience real darkness. So for the next few moments, we're gonna turn the lights down. And even here, we can't get everything completely off because there's to be a couple things glowing. All right, so here, here, the lights are gonna go off here. I want you to just stay stiff. You gotta go to the bathroom, just hold it, okay? I don't want the next sound to be someone tumbling down the steps, okay? All right. Now, in some parts of the room, I can't see anything. In fact, right now, if I stand the right way, I can't see my hand in front of my face. You see, when you're in utter, complete darkness, you get disoriented. Um, Ernest Shacklefield was an explorer in Antarctica. Ill-fated trip. And they talk about, uh, no, let's leave them off, please. Leave them off. Thank you, thank you. Um, they all died on this trip. And they talk about being in Antarctica where the sun goes down in mid-May and doesn't come up until the end of July. Total darkness, no sunlight for over two months. On that exploration, some men went absolutely mad, stark raving mad in the darkness. Why? You can't see yourself. You don't know where you're going. And not only that, so there's this disorientation and you can't see other people. You feel this sense of loneliness. That's what happens in the dark. We'll go ahead and turn the lights on now. And when Jesus dies, in fact, the most significant events of the cross this day happen in the darkness. What is Mark telling us here? Well, there is physical darkness. And again, our ancestors all would have experienced that. They, knew, they would have known what that was. They would have known what it was to have your hand right here and not be able to see, see it. Um, He was speaking of a spiritual darkness. Just as you can enter physical darkness and be disoriented, not really know where you're going, and not know who you're with, feel this loneliness because you can't see anybody else, so there is this reality of spiritual darkness. Now the only thing that's tricky about this is your eyes are fine, you see stuff, you think you're doing great, you think you're going in the right direction. Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Why? because spiritual darkness covers our soul. And when we orbit around anything else other than God, we're in the darkness. That's why in scripture, God is often referred to as light. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. That when we walk in the light of God, when we live in his presence, when we uh, build our lives around him, we live in, in the darkness. To live for something else, or to orbit around anything else, is to live in the darkness. We think we know where we're going, but we really don't. So you can orbit around the cross and find light because Jesus is there in, in uh, the, the light of God's glory. And there we find our true identity, it's in Christ. You and I were made to orbit around the sun and God is the sun. What does the sun bring? sun brings light so that you can see reality. Uh, the sun brings life. You, there'd be no life on planet Earth without the sun because it creates photosynthesis in our plants and allows them to grow and to, to produce food. Without photosynthesis, there, there, there are no there is no food. Um, so God is the source of life, but we live for something else, we, we, we get disoriented. It's like this, I used this a couple weeks ago, let me do it again, instead of the cross, um, you have people that live for and orbit around, we all orbit, come into this world, um, around orbiting around other things, all right? And for a lot of us, especially in America, it's success. And I have it representing here as a dollar sign, but, it, but it, it's not just the money, although that's a big part of it. Um, it's, it's, it's our career. I mean, many of us, we get our identity from our career. That's why within 10 minutes, 20 minutes of a conversation with a stranger, someone you never met, what are you asking? What do you do? because right? it allows you to kind of um, put them in some kind of category. Oh, you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick me. Oh, okay, I get it, I get it. That's who you are, right? And, and the only problem with this is that that becomes our identity. It's good to have a career, um, but, but when our, that's our identity, it doesn't have light. Therefore, it doesn't have life, because it's not built around God, and it looks like this, sort of disoriented, if you try to find your identity from your career, you're ultimately gonna be disappointed because you're not always gonna have your career. If you, if you try to build your identity around your youthful good looks and your strength, you're not always gonna have that, you're gonna lose that and you're gonna lose your identity. If you try to build it around the social network that you have, one day you're gonna lose that social network, it's gonna be gone and what do you, what's gonna come of you? I know what comes. I can tell when I'm, when I'm not orbiting around God, when I'm not living a Christ-centered life, my identity's in my, my, my role, my being a pastor. Now, I want to be a good pastor, and for three decades, I've, I've, I've strived to be a good pastor. But see, when it becomes my principal identity, it leads to disorientation. And I can always tell when my, my identity's kind of messed up when it's in my role as a pastor. If there's any setback, I feel just absolutely crushed. If there's criticism, I, I, just, I just get internally crushed. But you see, if, if your identity is built on Christ, yeah, you can, you can have a bad day at work, but you can, uh, you, you can separate yourself from that. You say, but I'm not that. I'm not, I'm not a pastor in my essence. That's what I do. I'm a follower, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in Christ. I'm a Jesus follower. I'm his. And, I, you know, stock market could go away, crash, and you lose 401k and everything, but you know what? You're gonna be you. Unless your life is built around the money thing, then you'll be utterly crushed. Like people, the Great Depression, jumping out of tall buildings because they couldn't imagine going on with life without their money. You see, when your life is, an identity is found in Jesus, you walk in the light. So light, darkness, huge. But here, I want you to see that Jesus entered Our darkness, which leads to the next thing, he then experienced our disorientation. Like I said, if your identity is found in anything other than Jesus, eventually it's going to cause you problems because eventually it'll be lost. Everything is going to be lost in this world, Um, and but and, and so we're spiritually lost. We're disoriented, we're living in the darkness even though we're not aware of it. We're living in the darkness. And so, in order to redeem us, Jesus enters our darkness and for three hours on the cross, he's in this thickest, blackest of darkness and he's abandoned. Look at verse 24, 34. It says here, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani is Aramaic, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from the Psalms, that's Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. And um, he cries out, when you are at your moment of greatest need, when you are at the bottom, when you have experienced much loss, it's then that you'll find what your life has been built on. At the depths of three hours of darkness, six hours on the cross, notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, my hands, my hands. After all, nails were driven through his wrists. The pain was excruciating, which means The word excruciating comes from Latin words meaning out of the cross. It's a horrible way to die. He doesn't say my feet, my feet with the nails driven through them. Nor does he say my friends, my friends. They all abandoned him after all. His identity wasn't built on the physical or on even the relational with his friends built on the Father and the most dear thing to him was this relationship with the Father it was this in the garden that Jesus dreaded the most now some theologians they try to get in and they try to explain in detail what does it mean that Jesus was abandoned there and and I I don't know I've got to a point where I just want to sit back and ponder the mystery I can't tell you exactly what's happening in that moment but something deeply profound that Jesus is experiencing utter disorientation and abandonment and what is revealed is the thing he loves the most the father his god and that's what he felt was gone for the first time ever, all he ever knew was the father's affection and the father's love. In, in, in Mark 1, the father speaks, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. That's all he ever knew for all eternity. And now, the father is missing and he's utterly crushed and disoriented. He was crushed for our transgressions. And he cries out, forsaken by God. What does he do? He experiences our forsakenness, our abandonment, our disorientation, our lostness. What's happening in the darkness? Remember I said this is real, but it's also a metaphor and a a message. In the Bible, when darkness appears in the daytime, it's a sign of God's displeasure. It's a sign of judgment. The prophets all spoke of this. I could quote uh, a number of different passages. Let me just turn to one. This is from Zephaniah um, chapter uh, one. And it says here, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, they says the mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. What they expected was a battle cry of victory. Yes, no. Yeah, it was victory, but of a different kind. It is finished. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. That's the day. The great and terrible day of the Lord is the day of the cross. And there he experiences the doom and the gloom and the utter darkness of this broken world. And God was judging. Darkness was a sign of the judgment of God. Okay, well, who's being judged? Jesus. Jesus is being judged. for six hours, but especially those last three. And there's no talking during those three hours until the very end. Jesus is somehow mysteriously experiencing the judgment of God. Why? Why have you forsaken me? The answer is for you. For me. It was forsaken and abandoned for us. Paul tries to, again, make sense of this great mystery. In 2 Corinthians, he writes these words, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here, all of this is from God, here speaking the cross, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God, here's what's happening on the cross, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He's committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never sinned. And so on the cross, he becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He becomes sin in some cosmic, mysterious way that none of us will really ever grasp or understand. Jesus becomes sin and is judged by God rightly and justly. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God. The righteous one is condemned so that we, the condemned, might become righteous. The one who is light, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me does not walk in darkness, but has the light of life. The light experienced darkness and was extinguished so that we who live in darkness could walk in light. and as he does this he opens the way for us let's go back to the story it says when some of those standing near heard this they said listen he's calling elijah someone ran filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Eloi, my God, sounds a bit like Elijah in Aramaic, but here's the thing. Throughout all of Mark, the crowds never got it. They never got Jesus. They hear his teaching and thought he, he would say this and they thought he meant that. They were never getting it. And here at the end, one last poignant example of how people, apart from the grace of God, don't get it. They're saying, oh, he's calling for Elijah. No, he's not. They just don't get it. And then it says with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Now we know from the other gospel accounts that what he said then was this victorious shout it is finished. It's finished. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So how do we know it worked? Jesus was judged for us. How how do we know? Well, Mark tells us, The curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now in Acts, we're told that that a number of priests became believers and started following Jesus. And and, uh, the priests would have been there that day and they would have given this information. They said, you would not believe what happened on the day Jesus died. You know that curtain, that thick curtain that separated the two rooms, the holy place from the holy of holies? it, It tore from the top to the bottom. We saw it ourselves. You see, in the in the holiest place in the temple. And there was the, the Ark of the Covenant. And this was the place where God dwelt among an unholy people. A holy God lived there in the center, the holiest place. Only one man, the chief priest, the high priest, could go into that room on one day out of 365 or 366 on leap year, one day, the day of atonement. And here, there he would make sacrifice for the sins of the people and they would tie a rope to his ankles just in case he went in in an unworthy manner and was struck dead, they could pull him out because nobody could go in that room. And it's, the, the curtain's torn. That literally happened. But figuratively, what it means is now anybody can come on in, and guess who's the first person who steps in? A pagan Roman soldier, whose job was to torture and kill people. I can't tell you how many times I talk with people, invite them to church, and they say, "Oh man, you know if I went to church, the ceiling would cave in on me." You know, a couple of times I've said, yeah, I get it, I understand, i yeah, I, I get it. It won't, it never has. Let me ask you, have you ever had a job that, your job was to torture people, drive nails through their feet and wrists, kill them? Oh, you've done some bad, th- you don't understand, Ron, I've done some bad things, have you, you ever done that? You ever done it so much that it just becomes routine? You don't think about killing a human being any more than killing a fly? Oh, that guy. He got in. That means you can get in. I can get in. All of us can get in. So why did the centurion say this? What was it that caused him? Now Mark doesn't tell us He just tells us the story. I I think there's a little clue. It says, the centurion was standing in front of Jesus, saw how he died. Now, the centurion saw a lot of men die. He killed a lot of men. Heard their anguished cries. But there was something different. That the one who created the wood that his body was nailed to breathed his last. Crucifixion was a horrible torture and a terrible way to die. Most people died by suffocation because when you're stretched in that position and hanging from your arms, your, your lungs can't fill with air. And so the only way to get a breath is to push up with your feet that are nailed to the wood. Get a breath. And then your body collapses and your lungs can't fill, so the only way you get your next breath is you push up and then collapse again. And most just simply ran out of strength to push up and they would suffocate. But Jesus has breath, lots of it. And says with a loud cry, it is finished. It was almost like he was in control. It it was almost like he gave up his life, not that it was taken from him. Isn't that what he said? No one takes my life, I lay it down. He laid it down and the centurion sees that. (laughs) He's never seen anything, no human being ever saw what that centurion saw. He said surely. This man was the son of God. (laughs) Who would have guessed it? Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first, well, there you go. Means there's hope for you and for me. Mark has the shortest account of the burial and the resurrection of Jesus of all the four gospels. It's almost like that's sort of an afterthought. Of course, he's the son of God. He's gonna defeat death, sure. The real point is here. This was the son of God. And it's like Mark turns to us, the readers, and says, okay, what's your verdict? What's your verdict? Can I just say, your answer to that question will determine Whether you live in darkness, you remain in darkness, or you live in light. It's everything. Because there's only one hope for us sin sick sinners. That someone would die for us. And that's what Jesus did. He carried the cross, despising the shame, and died for you and for me. Go read the rest of Psalm 22, which begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see that it ends on a note of triumph because it is finished. God did what only the Son of God could do. So what's your verdict? If you would follow him and your identity be wrapped up in him, you will walk in the light and you will never walk in darkness because you will have the light of life. That's the, it's it's that big. It really is that big. It's that epic, it's that life-transforming. What's your verdict? If you're not quite open, I I would invite you to just ponder the cross, the mystery, the beauty. You know there's a beauty in that darkness. Christianity is the only world religion, the only religion in the world that God suffers and dies and cries out in pain, abandoned. Which means, when you enter darkness, when you go through hard times, you are not alone because the Son of God experienced everything that you could possibly experience except so much more. He redeems our darkness. What's your verdict? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are here among us and that um, your word, this gospel speaks to us yet today. So I pray for those here today who maybe their lives have orbited around other things and they see that they, they see your light and your beauty. I pray that the cross would melt the hardness of their heart, shatter the darkness and let them find your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross that you took upon yourself the sins of the world and our darkness and our disorientation, our lostness, and redeemed it all. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. And we love you. I pray for those right now who maybe want to turn to you. So if your eyes closed, if you... You say, yeah, I I need to make a decision. I need to render a verdict. And you want it to be Jesus, the Son of God, then just pray in your own words something like this, Jesus, I acknowledge you are the Son of God, the hope of the world, the Messiah. Just say that in your heart. I wanna walk in your light and follow you all the days of my life. I believe some just walked into the light. So Jesus says, you will never walk in darkness. You will have the light of life. Thank you for the cross and for this beautiful story called the gospel according to Mark. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed today's message, make sure to subscribe to this channel. Feel free to share this with others that God has put on your heart. To learn more about LaCroix Church or to find your next steps, head to LaCroixChurch.org. Thanks again for checking us out and we hope to see you soon.